Hey everybody, this is Hunter Williams. Today we're going to be episode 100 of the NeuroEd Podcast. Wow, if you have listened to any of these thus far, or maybe this is your first one, I just want to say thank you so much I've made it thus far. I started this almost a year ago now, and we have made it a full 100 episodes, hopefully many more hundreds to come in the future. So as a person, maybe you are a long-time listener, this is your first episode, I always I want to say thank you so much and send my sincerest gratitude to you for listening to the NeuroEdge podcast. Now, wanted to do some fun stuff for episode 100. So today what I've got on the menu is a little bit of health, a little bit of fitness, a little bit of finance, and a little bit of metaphysical action. Not really metaphysical, but a little bit. And... The menu for today's episode is, is Bluetooth dangerous? What is DeFi? How positive muscle failure can help in our training? What are scalar waves? And what is junk DNA? So if any of those topics sound interesting to you, please stay tuned for the entirety of the episode. And I'll be going over all those in about five minute segments. So you get more or less what you need to know going forward. And if anything, understand a framework for understanding the world better and moving into Christmas and the holidays going forward, you have little nuggets of information that maybe you can strike up a conversation with your family or friends or whoever you're going to be around this Christmas. Hopefully you get to be around some people because that has been very limited this year. That being said, as always, I just want to remind people, if you enjoy these topics, if this is something you're interested in, head on over to the Facebook group. You will see that we have a community of people in there talking, and eventually I want to get to doing more Q&A episodes. So if you ever have any questions or comments or whether you think anything I say is completely bogus, put that to, and we can always have a lively intellectual debate, and we'd like to have you come on, possibly. So... That being said, let's hop on into episode 100. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And let's talk about Bluetooth. So this is one thing I think about because every morning when I work out, I usually have Bluetooth headphones in. And I notice if you, not for a few minutes, but if you ever have Bluetooth headphones on for an extended period of time, sometimes I notice a little distortion of the frequency that may give me a little bit of headache. Also can depend on what kind of situation I'm in with the Bluetooth headphones, but what I want to talk about is this idea that Bluetooth and EMF are correlated and actually have many of the same effects. So this article is on radiationhealthrisks.com, and it's basically just about Bluetooth being dangerous. So this article says Bluetooth is dangerous because, like regular Wi-Fi, it transmits using radio frequency, RF, radiation, using the exact same frequency your microwave oven uses to cook your food. There are literally hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific studies linking RF to things like cancer, DNA damage, and infertility. Even the World Health Organization was finally forced to classify it as a possible, possible carcinogenic in 2011. So Bluetooth is basically Wi-Fi designed for individual devices to communicate with each other and share data rather than to connect you to the internet. And you will often hear today that Bluetooth is safe because it's typically a lower powered signal than regular RF radiation. But this is a misnomer for two reasons. So first, according to Kevin Motis of the U.S. Brain Tumor Association, within the RF radiation portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, the higher the frequency, the more dangerous it is to living organisms. So Bluetooth is actually a higher frequency than most cell phones. 
And second, a constant low-powered RF radiation signal is more dangerous than a powerful short-term duration or short-duration RF radiation signal. So Bluetooth emits RF radiation constantly as long as it is on, and it is a slightly higher frequency than 4G cell surface. So 5G is actually a much higher frequency than Bluetooth, but Bluetooth is higher than 4G. So obviously, I never thought Bluetooth was that dangerous, but it's actually more intense than even 4G. So another false claim that is made is that there's no study showing that Bluetooth is harmful to humans. Well, whenever you hear that, it always is one of those things that kind of sounds like wordsmithing. But people say this because there are so few studies to have been done specifically on the Bluetooth signal. Lack of studies does not prove something is safe, nor does it prove it's harmful, but I think we get from looking at the overall evidence, it's more likely to prove it's harmful. And as was mentioned earlier, there have literally been hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific studies on RF radiation going back to the 1960s. So, how does it affect our health? Well, turn, turns out Bluetooth technology is linked to rare brain tumors, dizziness, sleep issues, anxiety, depression, birth defects, and more. As you read earlier, the RF radiation has a thermal effect on the body. So that means RF has the properties to change our cell structure and make us more susceptible to disease and other health problems. So just be conscious of that as you have Bluetooth headphones on. Try not to make it a habit to fall asleep with them on or have them on for the entirety of the day because we are getting these effects on our cells and it's affecting the mitochondrial health of our cells. And in this article, it it says he reads about a young man who was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in his inner ear canal. Turns out that a neurosurgeon told him off the record he was on certain Bluetooth devices may have contributed to developing this disease. So Bluetooth is not as widely studied as cell phone radiation and other sources of RF. With that being said, there is assumption that low levels of RF considered safe without a real true science backing up this claim. However, many experts in the field of RF believe that low level Exposure does, over a long period, amount to becoming a big problem. So because Bluetooth is actually similar to microwave radiation, we can sometimes look studies linking microwave exposure to health problems to better understand the risk associated with these modern-day devices. And although we don't know the long-term risk of using Bluetooth devices, this is kind of one of those things, I would rather be safe than sorry and try to not do it as much as I can. So how do we reduce this? Well, obviously you don't want Bluetooth. Now that may be tough if you work out with Bluetooth headphones. And remember Bluetooth um, are only one source of RF exposure. So we still have our cell phones and other things that are harming us. So what is the alternative? So. Wired headsets can actually act as an antenna and track an ambient and EMS transmitted, transmitting radiation directly to your brain, thereby increasing your exposure. So are wired headphones a better alternative? Maybe not. So there are things called an air tube headset that allows air tubes to conduct sound from your cell phone other devices using sound waves. And there's websites you can look that up on Amazon and stuff. So obviously this is a little scary, but it's one of those things we need to be on guard about and just make sure that we are doing everything we can to mitigate the exposure and risk that we're getting from all of these frequencies around us. I think that's one thing. Going to the future that we're just going to have to be super on guard against is all of the frequencies around us, how they're affecting our cellular health, and making sure we're doing everything we can to guard against it. 
finishes it up this article and says one study found just two hours of exposure to RF radiation like that from Bluetooth can cause irreversible cell damage. And a lot of people can be in their car making Bluetooth calls, or if you're in a sales job, a lot of times you may be on the phone for a lot of times, so these things can be dangerous to us. Moving on, so not to scare anybody, but I think it's just one of those things that you want to be on guard against and make sure that you're not blatantly overexposing yourself to the EMF frequencies that we're getting because they're obviously all around us. Now, moving on to a different subject entirely, what is DeFi? So if you are involved in the crypto space at all, or even not, you've probably heard this term DeFi, and it's just short for decentralized finance. And this is an umbrella term for a variety of financial applications in cryptocurrency or blockchain geared toward disrupting financial intermediaries. If 2020 has shown us one thing, it's shown that the world is ripe for disruption, and there's a lot of opportunities out there, especially given the new economic landscape that we're going to be entering into. And I think DeFi is going to be a big part of that. So DeFi draws inspiration for blockchain, the technology behind Bitcoin, which allows several entities to hold a copy of a history of transactions, meaning it isn't controlled by a single central source. So that's important because centralized systems and human gatekeepers can limit the speed and sophistication of transactions while offering users less direct control over their money. So DeFi is a thing because it expands the use of the blockchain from simple value transfer to more complex financial use cases. So basically, the idea of DeFi is building off the blockchain to replace a lot of the tradi traditional financial institutions that we have in our world today. And if you think about financial institutions, they exist to be a middleman. They exist to be a middleman between transfer of value between two parties. And our systems are so big, we have these huge financial sectors that have to act as middlemen between parties to have act as a third party, whether that's in a lending transaction or whether that's just in a money transfer transaction. We have these huge entities in the banking system that take trillions of dollars of value out of our economy because they're so big. And DeFi is basically trying to eliminate this middleman in the banking system. So Bitcoin and many other digital native assets stand out from legacy digital payment methods, such as those run by Visa and PayPal, and they remove all middleman from the transaction. So when you pay with a credit card for coffee, the coffee shop or Starbucks, a financial institution sits between you and the money going to that business with control over the transaction, retaining the authority to stop the deposit and record it in its private ledger. However, with cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, these players are being cut out of the picture. So other things are also huge in this space. So financial applications such as loans, insurance, crowdfunding, derivatives, betting, and more also lose their control to third-party middlemen. So this is one of the goals and end games of the decentralized finance. So most applications that call themselves DeFi are built on top of Ethereum, the world's second largest cryptocurrency platform, which is different from Bitcoin. And that's easier for users to build other types of what they call DApps or decentralized applications beyond simple transactions. So these more complex, complex use cases were highlighted by Vitalik Buterin, who created the Ethereum uh, when he originally created it back in 2013. So Ethereum has these things called smart contracts, which automatically execute transactions if such conditions are met. So this offers much more flexibility. So Ethereum programming languages such as Solidity are specifically designed for creating and deploying smart contracts like this. So to give an example, and my goal is to always make this 
real world concrete, what does it look like? Because a lot of people in the cryptocurrency space right now, they talk about these things and it just sounds like complete jargon and stuff that nobody understands. So say a user wants his or her money to be sent to a friend next Tuesday, but only if the temperature climbs above 90 degrees Fahrenheit according to weather.com. Such rules can be written in a smart contract. With smart contracts at their core, dozens of DeFi applications are operating on Ethereum, some of which are explained. And Ethereum 2.0, a coming upgrade to Ethereum's underlying network, could give these apps a boost by chipping away at Ethereum's scalability issues. The problem with Ethereum right now is that the speed of transactions to take place is very slow and lagging. So some different things that DeFi can be used for is DEXs, DEXs, decentralized exchanges. So online exchanges help you to exchange currencies for other currencies, whether US dollars for Bitcoin. DEXs are a hot type of exchange which connects users directly so they can trade cryptocurrencies with one another without trusting an intermediary for their money. So think about how big that is, being able to send money back and forth between two parties without having to send the money wire or all these different third-party things that we have to use, Venmo, whatever it is. Another one is a stable coin. So a cryptocurrency that's tied to an, outside, out, an asset outside of cryptocurrency, for example, the dollar, the euro, um, lending platforms. So lending platforms can use smart contracts to replace intermediaries such as banks, um, which is a huge and trillions of dollar industry. Prediction markets, so this I think this is pretty cool. So markets for betting on the outcome of future events such as elections. And this is basically a way that you can use optionality to profit or speculate on different things or hedge your risk. That's what's cool about the options market and derivatives is you can hedge your risk on things. And this is a way to eliminate the third party middleman. Another thing is yield farming. So this is where users scan through various DeFi tokens in search of larger returns. Liquidity mining, when DeFi applications entice users to their platform by giving them free tokens. This has been the uh, biggest form of yield farming yet. And money Lego. So putting the concept of composability in other way, DeFi apps are like Legos with the toy blocks children to click together to construct building vehicles and so on. So DeFi apps can simply be snapped together like money Legos to build new financial products, which is pretty cool. So this is very in the infancy right now. So this whole idea deal of DeFi, what I think of this is, is kind of like the internet in the late 80s and early 90s. You know it's gonna be big and maybe some people are arguing against that it won't, but we can't really see the use case for this yet because it's in such its infancy. But probably what's gonna happen in the next 10 years, a lot of these traditional massive institutions that we've relied upon for the function of our economy, their margins are gonna be whittled away by things like DeFi that are cheaper, more effective, more efficient, and give more power to people in a decentralized manner rather than consolidating control. At least that is my hope because it always seems like you're worried war between parties that want to consolidate and gain control and parties that want to liberate and decentralize control. So that is the future of DeFi. Think about it as the people's liberation of the financial system. Now, moving along to something that is a little bit more health and fitness based, what I want to talk about is positive muscle failure, and I've really been focusing on this in my training lately, and all credit goes to this. I learned this from one of my mentors, Jay Campbell, and his books, and also just speaking with him. And in his book, he talks about how we can use positive muscle failure. Basically, positive muscle failure is defined by you not being able to perform the concentric portion of the movement without compromising form. So working sets are compromised of one to two sets going to positive failure, the first of which you target a range of 20 to 25 reps, and the second following will be the same weight 
um, two positive muscle failures. So most trainees will fail at a rep range of 12 to 18 reps. So that being said, basically it's this idea that you want to be going to failure on your sets in whatever you're doing. So a lot of people go to the gym and they just train reps and sets. So three by 10 here, three by 10 here, three by 10 here, and you're not actually pushing yourself beyond the point of failure. The way to make progress is actually go to the point of failure and just to the point of failure where you're starting to compromise form. And so it's not total failure where you're completely losing and gassing your muscles, but you're going to the point where you start to compromise form. And if you do that across all of your exercises, believe me, you're going to make huge progress in your gains. And this is something I've been doing lately and getting into more of a bodybuilding style training. This hypertrophy really works well because it pushes your body helps build dense muscle, but also keeps you from getting injured. So keep that in mind when you're training, you want to go to failure because that's how you make progress. A lot of people go to the gym, and if that's you right now, don't go to the gym and just count, hey, I'm doing 20, set, 20 reps of this, two sets. You want to push yourself to failure at least on a couple sets throughout your workout as you're going through it. So thought that was something I would share with you guys. And if you want to know more info about this, definitely check out Jay Campbell, go to his website, check out his books. This one is from the Metabolic Low Torch Diet, but he has a lot of good books and basically has taught me most of what I know in terms of just overall health, longevity, and training. Now, what are scalar waves? So I think as we move into the future, a lot more people are going to see Nikola Tesla as someone that was way, 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 way ahead of his time and much more advanced than a lot of the other scientists that we've been told to believe were the ones that were so smart at the time and that a lot of the scientism that people worship as religion right now based their framework and understanding of the world on. So what are scalar waves? So I wanted to talk about this because this is more along the Tesla side of technology thing. So scalar waves are conceived as longitudinal waves as are sound waves. So unlike the transversal waves of electromagnetism, which move up and down perpendicular to the direction of propagation, longitudinal waves vibrate in line with the direction of propagation. Transversal waves can be observed in water ripples. The ripples move up and down as the overall wave move outward, such as that there are two actions, one moving up and down and the other propagating in a specific direction outward. Technically speaking, scalar waves have magnitude but no direction since they are imagined to be the result of two electromagnetic waves that are 180 degrees out of phase with one another, which leads to both signals being canceled out. This results in a kind of pressure wave. So physicist James Clerk Maxwell, in his original mathematical equations concerning electromagnetism, established the theoretical existence of scalar waves. After his death, however, later physicists assumed these equations were meaningless and scalar waves had not been empirically observed. Yeah empirically observed, and repeatedly verified among the scientific community at large. So vibrational or subtle energetic research, however, has helped advance our understanding of scalar waves. Again, a lot of, move, a lot of science understanding is moving from this Newtonian understanding of matter to the vibrational understanding of matter, and that everything is waves, not just matter. So one important discovery states there are many different types of scalar waves, not just those of the electromagnetic variety, for example, there are vital scalar waves corresponding with the key body, and emotional scalar waves, mental scalar waves, causal scalar waves, and so forth. In essence, as far as we are aware, all subtle energies are made up of various types of scalar waves. So, some general properties of scalar waves in include they travel faster than the speed of light, they seem to transcend space and time, they cause the molecular structure of water to become coherently reordered, 
They positively increase immune function in mammals and are involved in the formation process in nature. So not all scalar waves or solar energies are beneficial to living systems. Electromagnetism of the 60 hertz AC variety, for example, emanates a secondary longitudinal wave that is typically detrimental to living systems. So that being said, so how does this matter to us? Well, scalar waves are basically our understanding for how energy moves in the future. So if you understand energy from a vibrational standpoint, where it moves instead of being dense and things happen in a linear fashion, they happen in a non-linear wave-like fashion. And if you understand that about how the world works around us, you're going to understand how energy is going to flow more around you. And I say this as someone who is very, at least for much of my life, has been left-brained and grounded in reason and research, but a lot of the research is pointing now to understanding our reality as a waveform reality instead of a concrete matter reality. So we only see a certain percent of the electromagnetic spectrum. And because we only see that certain percent, we tend to want to quantify things to in terms of matter. And there's much more outside the scope of our reality. So definitely if this stuff is interesting to you, let me know, or you can go find out more yourself what I love talking about. Now, moving along to the last thing, what is junk DNA? So I've heard a lot about this and wanted to read some more about it. So Junk DNA is DNA that is not code for proteins, in essence. There are four principles, principal types of junk DNA. So introns are internal segments within genes that are removed at the RNA level. Pseudogenes are inactivated by insertion or deletion. Satellite sequences are short repeats, and interspersed repeats are longer repetitive sequences, mostly derived from mobile DNA elements. So Darwinists often cite junk DNA as evidence for grander claims of the theory of evolution starting that such junk DNA makes little sense within the framework of intelligence line. However, I would counter that statement. So contrary to Darwinian claims, recent scientific discoveries have shown that the non-protein coding regions of the genome direct the production of RNA molecules that regulate the use of protein coding regions of DNA. Cell and genome biologists have also discovered that these supposedly non-protein coding regions of the genome perform functions such as the following. Regulation of DNA replication, regulation of transcription, marking sites for program rearrangements of genetic material, influencing the proper folding and maintenance of chromosomes, controlling the interactions of chromosomes with nuclear membrane, controlling RNA processing, editing, and splicing, modulating translation, regulating embryological development, repairing DNA, eating and fighting, di in fighting disease. So what does this mean? So junk DNA, far from being useless, Remnants left over from past evolutionary permutations as materialistic models assert the non-protein coding DNA directs the use of informa other information in the genome. This is one of the many areas where intelligence design, contrary to the criticisms of it, makes scientific predictions which can be indeed have been verified by experimentation and scientific enterprise. So basically to sum that up, it goes to this. A lot of Darwinian scientists people say we have these non-coding proteins in our DNA that cause us, or they're just there and they don't really do anything. And that's the byproduct of evolution that as we had all these different permutations throughout our species, that we have these things that we don't really need anymore. Contrary to that, a lot of science is discovering now that these, this DNA does have functions and it plays into the existence, which lends more to the idea that, and again, no right or wrong or judgment here, but that it appears we are made more by intelligence design, at least because we seem to be using even these other things that they thought before were previously unused. 
I also wanted to state this, and I don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but that at some point humans in our history had much stronger powers than we give ourselves to believe now. So a lot of people would just say now that human beings are this one thing and we can't do anything outside of what our physical body tells us from the scientific perspective. When actually humans have been around for thousands and thousands of years and even though we only have history in the mainstream dating back to you know 12,000 years or so ago, there are things in our body that have probably been there for a long time and had purposes in the past that we just aren't activating now through our DNA. So I think the DNA is like the computer code. And if you have a computer that can do all these cool things, but you only use it to browse the web and not all those other cool things, it doesn't mean that it, those other things aren't there and that it's not capable of doing it. I think the human body is the same way. And this junk DNA is the extra code in our genome and in our cells that we can actually use to do really, really powerful things. We just haven't turned it on yet and haven't created the environment that allows for the coming forth of those extra powers within ourselves. So just a little hunch I have and something I wanted to talk about, but I don't know, if you disagree with them, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm not a scientist or anything. That's just what my gut intuition tells me. So that being said, today was episode 100 on 122-2020. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like this, enjoy it. Leave some feedback and let me know what you'd like me to talk about if you have any Q&A, and I will talk to you guys soon. If you don't hear from me, I'll probably do one more, but if you don't, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all you guys out there. Peace.